the, there's going to be a lot of study material, but one of the books that we're using is Tim LaHaye's uh, Revelation Unveiled. And so we've been, they're $5, but we're sold, I mean, first come, first serve, so they're gone. Um, it's called Revelation Unveiled by Tim LaHaye. But I'm going to be giving handouts um, every week, so you'll, you'll be okay. Um, are we out of handouts too? Praise God. All right. Here. Um, okay. We'll go into production. We do. They need to be... Uh, I got more. Hold on. Let me uh, let me show you how you do this. This is you got to be de- you got to be deliberate, or it's a mess. All right. There you go. All right. Yeah. All right. There you go. But you go. Be deliberate, okay? Or you're gonna have a mess. Okay. Um, so we will see if uh, we've actually tried to get the books offline as used books. That's why they're only five bucks. You could probably go online and get a, a new one if you wanted to. Tim LaHaye, I would encourage, this is a really good study. Um, anyone here believe you have a really good handle on the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. One, two, you need three. You need to come pray for me. I, I'm serious. This, of all the mysterious books of the scriptures, and it's one of those diamond things. As you turn it, it has kind of a new light that comes to it. And as We've been looking at, and even in our uh, studies sometimes on Sunday morning, and I'm going to try to tie those together. When you look at the prophetic words that are coming out from history right now, if you were watching Monday when Erdogan from Turkey was on, when John Bolton was overseas, if you're watching any of the news today, you say, Woof, what is that that's happening? And when you, when you balance that against Scripture that was written in Ezekiel's case 2,500 years ago, and we know that it's a valid book because the Dead Sea Scrolls validate it that were found in 1948 and found by the Israelis when they captured in 1967 and got that whole region. Um, they then brought those forward, and we've had scholars decipher the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of the Old Testament books. I was in Israel in November. We saw the book of the, the Museum of the Book. They have... Several, I think over half a dozen copies of this full book of Isaiah, but they have the entire Old Testament and some of the scraps of New Testament writings that the Essenes, who were a sect that lived outside, just as the Roman pressure was growing, the Essenes were a sect that moved outside and went into the Quran area. It's uh, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually buried. When they were, when the, when the Romans decided to go ahead and put down the rebellion. And they crushed all of Israel and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was prophesied by Jesus in the Mount of Olives. If you were here Sunday, we looked at uh, Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. You'll see that that prophecy was fulfilled. Well, God in his ultimate wisdom of timing and strategy, he had this sect go out and they were hiding in the desert. They were the keepers of the book and all the scrolls. They had all the scrolls. And they decided, well, we better hide these because the Romans are coming. So they hid them in multiple caves in the desert in a perfect environment that they wouldn't rot and they wouldn't be exposed to the elements until a little Bedouin boy finds it. In 1948, the biggest, one of the greatest archaeological finds of all history because it validates your faith. The book was not written after the fact. It was written before the fact and now validated. So all the skeptics... 
And even our Jewish friends, uh, which we challenged when we were there, I asked our guide, uh, Yossi, I said, so how do you handle this Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant who hung on the cross? He goes, hmm. God's going to pull that veil back, just as he promised he would do in Romans, in the book of Romans. Anyway, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for, as we study your word, this is maybe the only book which it promises the reader and those who read it and obey will be blessed. So I thank you, Lord, as we study this, everyone who's here and we read it together is going to be an outpouring of your blessing and revelation. I pray that you would encourage us to get such a revelation of the Scripture that is true. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is good for equipping and discerning and making the person of the believing heart able to see truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would do that with us over the next few weeks, continually this year as we honor your word. Because we know that Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is full of living power and it's able to cut between soul and spirit that we might be able to discern the intents of the heart. And so, Lord, we thank you right now, Father. Come, Holy Spirit, hide us in the midst of all this stuff and let us rightfully divide this truth, which is mysterious. And I believe it's intentionally vague because you know human nature. You created us. And if we knew the actual day and hour, we'd probably mess up until then. But because you put stretch on that, and it's vague, you tell us to get ready, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. Hebrews, he says in in chapter 10, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. So Lord, we ask that we would be drawn together and we would see the truth through this time together, we pray. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. You're the teacher. We're just trying to facilitate this. All I am is the glove on your hand. So God, move in any direction you wish, and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll, we'll hopefully we'll have more, but you could go online and take a look at uh, purchasing, if you want, Revelation Unveiled by Tim LaHaye. It's a very thorough study. Um, I hold to a lot of what's in here, but I'm going to present enough of the questions that many of the scholars, we've, we've talked about this before, you may be a pre-tribber, that we're out of here before the tribulation happens. You may be a mid-tribber. You may be a partial tribulation rapture group, or you may be a post. And I'll tell you what, there's enough arguments in all these things about why they believe and what scripture they can pick on. It's the same kind of thing we did one night when we said, okay, we're going to decide tonight whether once you're saved, you're always saved. And I remember Dave and Danny, and we had them represent one. all the once saved, always saved, you can't lose salvation, come sit here. And all those that say, well, man, you can lose your salvation if you mess it up, come sit over here. And all those that aren't sure, sit right here. And they presented their cases. We went into the courtroom, and they presented their cases. And at the end of that, we had, I think, more people sitting in the middle. And the point of that all is, again, it's, you can find scriptures on both sides of this thing. And I believe what Jesus was saying is, why would you try to get so close to the edge of messing up that you can make it? by the skin of your teeth, as opposed to, wait a minute, let me get right back here. So 
I believe the book of Revelation is written in that context. It is intentionally vague. God doesn't do anything by mistake. It's intentionally vague in some of the timing and, and substance of it. One, so that we are like, whoa, this is, this is a terrible thing that's coming on the earth. I'm, I'm not, this is, this is a terrible thing that's coming on the earth. When this thing starts to happen, I'm telling we, I don't want to be here, but if we are here, we need to be prepared to stand under it. And so we're going to look at that at the end of this thing. One, I hope there's a greater fear of the Lord. That's one of my heart. There's a fear of the Lord that respectfully honors the fact that He's coming, He's in charge. He sets the rules, not you, not me, and it's about Him, it's not about us. We get to participate with that, but also there's a respect for the fact that it's going to all pan out. He's in charge, and those that are His kids are going to be all right, no matter how it goes, in the furnace, past the furnace, around the furnace. All right, so Lord, we just thank you. So if you haven't gotten a handout, this is what you'll need tonight. We're going to look at that. Here's another approach to this tonight. Um, I have a few more of these left. Last year, we did a whole series multiple times of equipping the saints. One of our roles is what we, we know from Ephesians. We are to equip you, the saints, to do the work of ministry, right? So as, as the resourcers to help you. So we put together a book. This, it started with, what do we believe? I am amazed at what people don't know about what we're supposed to believe. Seriously. And some people have sat in the, in, the, in the church for a long time. So we started with a series of what do we believe, and we did a whole set of teaching. Lisa had a teaching. The whole year was, was pretty much, you ought to take these people. If you were here on Wednesday nights, then Walter came. It's good to see Walter Goey again with us tonight. Walter came twice during uh, the, both in the spring and then in the fall and did a whole series of revelation on, on, on believing what God said, <laughs> whether it was about the cosmos at the molecular level and some of the crazy things that uh, society believes. Anyway, so what our purpose is, I have a few of these left. If, any, if you have picked up one last year, what I would suggest you do is every one of these handouts, get them, put them in a notebook, go and look and study them. Doug said at men's group Monday night, he said, I take the sermon outlines and I take them home and I study them to get it down deep in. I encourage you, you can't, you can't get it by sitting for an hour. If you're not studying during the week, you're not, you're not going to be fully equipped and ready. And so, all right, so these are available tonight if you, uh, this one's mine, so I'm not going to let anybody take mine away. Um, but there's a few more books here and, and we'll have some more handouts next week. All right, uh, let me give you some of what we're going to do. We're going to look at the book of, we're going to take eight weeks. I think this is how it's going to go. We're going to start eight weeks. And um, to study the book of Revelation, 22 chapters in eight weeks is a Herculean effort. So it's going to require, if you would also, what a great time. We're in a 21-day fast. We began that, asking the Lord, using the scriptures out of Haggai. If you were here the last Sunday of the, of the year, we laid that out. What is God saying for us? And we looked at Haggai chapter 1 and 2. There's only two chapters there. And in the, in the context of that timing, which I believe fits with what we're trying to do now in the equipping of the saints, Haggai was one of the latter prophets in the Old Testament. 
The Israelis had just been given freedom. Daniel and the crew had been exiled because of sin, prophesied both in Ezekiel and Isaiah. They would be there exactly 70 years, and they were. Isaiah, 150 years before, had prophesied there would be a king that would come up, a pagan king. His name would be Cyrus. He was one of the Medes and Persians kings. 150 years before he was even around, Isaiah writes, there'll be a king named Cyrus. And if you go look in Ezekiel and you look in Isaiah, that prophecy, it tells him and everyone else that he's going to be raised up one day as the world power, and he's going to give favor to the Jews, and he's going to let them go back to their land. Exactly 70 years after the exile began, remember Daniel, in Alaska, the, the writing on the wall, and that night, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son gets the whole thing, the kingdom falls apart, the Medes and Persians take over, and at that moment, the exile is now about to end. The Lord raises up a prophet, Haggai, an older gentleman who probably was in his mid-70s, who remembered Solomon's temple before the exile, which was a splendid temple, right? Trillions, the amount of money that was spent on that temple that David accumulated and his son built, well, that gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Exile happens because of Israel's sin. And now they get prophesied, you're going to come back after 70 years. The Lord raises a prophet, Haggai, an older gentleman, and a young prophet named Zechariah, and another young prophet named Malachi. And they prophesy that you're supposed to go back and build the second temple. Well, can you imagine going back from exile to a land that was completely demolished? You bring your kids and maybe your goats and whatever else you got. You got to build your house. You got to plant your crops. You got to take care of the kids. You got to make mama happy. And all that's got to go down. And by the way, we're also going to build a temple. Well, they do really good for the first couple of years. They lay the foundation. And then probably crop time and whatever, they let it go. And at that point, Ezra, Zerubbabel, they're not, they're not doing the job. So the Lord says, I'm not happy. You build your homes and you leave my house in shambles, and I'm not blessing you. So their crops, they're not getting a good yield on their crops. Things are going bad. So what do they do? God raises up Haggai. He goes there, and he says, consider your ways. That's one of the scriptures for us this year. Haggai 1.7 Consider your ways. What are you doing that is not pleasing to the Lord? What is the defilement, the little bit of compromise? The Lord says, you ought to consider your ways. You're not going to get blessed. And you are the temple. Know ye not that you are the temple of the Lord, right? He says in Corinthians. So we're not building a structure. We're building a kingdom that is in here. We read this morning out of Romans chapter 8 and 11 in our intercessory prayer. What a time this morning was. Woo. Don't you know that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. Now, I, I got to tell you, that just causes my brain to go, right? I can't get it. But that's what he said. And the only thing that's holding him back is you and me and our self-will and all the stuff we get involved in. And he's saying, consider your ways. I'd like you to build the temple. And then he goes on and he says, as soon as they start, he brings that to the governor and he brings that to the high priest. 
And they said, yes, we're going to do it. The people get on board. They start building the temple, and God starts blessing, blessing, blessing as they start. And then he says in Haggai chapter 2, this is one of my mom's verses from a few years back. While the seed is still in the barn, I will bless you. Now, that is a promise. Before you even plant your seed, he's decided he's going to let it grow. Uh, So, I believe it's a really good word for us and where we are as a nation, where we are as a people group, that it is time for us to consider our ways. And as we consider our ways, application of the word and rightly dividing the truth and where we are is very important to where we're going. I showed some stuff Sunday. I'm going to pick up part two this coming Sunday. The time is accelerating. It's such a rapid pace right now. And we are so oblivious. They're worried about shutdowns and this and that and the other. Right now, there are things going on. And fortunately, I'm connected to some rabbis that are in Israel and other places. And I'm getting information they send to me. And I'm like, holy mackerel. So I just try to share with you. A couple of things I flashed up Sunday was the meeting between the Russian president last week, the Turkish president, so you had Erdogan, Putin, and Rouhani of Iran. They are having a meeting on Syria. They have, and you see them in this handshake alliance. And so that is prophesied out of Ezekiel, that there was an alliance that will be formed. This is written 2,500 years ago. In the latter days, I will call them to come from the north against my people Israel as they dwell safely in the land. Monday, Erdogan got up and, you know, our president said we're going to pull some troops out of Syria. We pretty much knocked ISIS out and, man, raised up all this flags going. People didn't want to do that. Well, what about the Kurds? What are you going to do? And John Bolton, national security advisor, is in the Middle East meeting with the prime minister of Israel and saying, look, we're going to pull them out. It's going to be orderly. We need to protect our allies, the Kurds. And then he went and met with the Turkish president. Turkish president wouldn't even meet with him. He gets in front of his Congress, and he says, we're not having any of this. I'm telling you, the stage is being set right now for the alliance, this unholy alliance that was prophesied in Ezekiel. We're going to look at how that alliance, you can't do revelation without the connection of the other revelatory scriptures, and we're going to touch on these. What you'll see is the continuity of scripture written by 66 books, How many different authors over 2,500 years that all coincide? Only by God. So, I mean, and once you start putting that all together, you're going to say, whoa. If 80% of what's already taken place was exactly prophesied, what do you think the remaining 20% is going to do? And that ought to get us excited when you start to see these things like, whoa. When you see companies starting to implant in Michigan chips in their employees... We're already doing it in animals, but now they're saying, the other thing I flashed up is Israel has moved for security reasons to do away with cash and to do away with traceable uh, uh, checks. It's coming. And so there's a place here, you're not going to be able to buy or sell at some point without a chip embedded or at least offered to you. And we know when we read the Revelation, that's coming, that's the globalist plan for one world government, which this whole thing about immigration, I believe personally, is based upon that. No worlds, no, uh, no walls, no sovereignty. Let everything go down. That's why you got the European Union. We're at this place. When you start looking at what the scriptures portray here, we're on an accelerated path to what's coming.
And so I hope that, the, that my desire, my prayer request is, Lord, that we'll get excited about what we see and then be able to correlate. It's not some distant thing. I believe we're going to see this before many of us end in this lifetime. That's my personal opinion. Now, Paul thought that too, but I think we're a lot closer than we were. And Jesus said, when you start to see all these things start to take place, know it is right at the door, even at the door. So, all right. Let me just give you... uh, Obviously, this will be one of our main studies, and I would encourage you to, you can read through this, but I've got a whole bunch of other study guides that I've been looking at. Um, Letters of the Revelation, if you have not read about the seven churches, which we're going to look at in chapters one and two of the book of Revelation, I thought this was a really good study. Dr. Hilton Sutton, Revelation teaching on syllabus of that history. Um, He also co-authored, Tim LaHaye wrote one with uh, Timothy Parker, which is another book on uh, the book of Revelation made clear. Uh, Still not clear, but okay. Um, There's another book by Sutton who wrote on God's grand finale. And then this one is one that uh, Mike Thornton and I were looking at, the book of Revelation by Claren Turkin. So there's, commentaries are, you get a lot of opinions on what this is all about. But I like the word. (laughs) I really do. And so, okay, so let's, let's start. Uh, if you look at your handout with me, is it warm in here? No, it's not. Women say it's not. Okay, it's not. It's not warm. Okay. All right. She's dressed like a Russian paratrooper, but she's not. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, the, the, this Equipping the Saints series on the study of the book of Revelation, I've, I've included in here the, my sermon outline from Sunday, even though we didn't, we, worship was awesome. Wasn't it off the hook Sunday? Whew. We had to let it go for a while, so I didn't get to finish, which is fine. I'll, we'll do part two this Sunday. But I've included the sermon outline for Sunday and for last Sunday and this coming Sunday, which is the first couple pages for those that might not have been here. Um, references here, we're going to look at, we'll, we'll bounce between the King James New Living Translation and also the Tim LaHaye Revelation series, and then I'll look at, uh, I've included a lot of the picture and handout outlines from both Sutton and from uh, LaHaye. All right, if you'll turn to the third page back, which talks about the chronolo- shows a chronological outline of the book of Revelation, I think it would be good for me to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'll tell you and then I'll tell you what I told you, right? Then we'll just kind of build on that. And if you look at um, what the, the, the 22 chapters that are in the book of Revelation, um, it's important for us to kind of look at the who, the what, and the when, and the where. And the, the, the who, Christ, is the revelator. And if you look at that first page of your handout, uh, it literally means... Apocalypsis, in the Greek, it's the apocalypse. You've heard, how many have seen this growth of um, an interest in all of the end-time apocalyptic, I mean, right? Zombie land, I don't watch it, but, you know, it's there, right? Uh, But even the movies are coming out with this intriguing between aliens, the robotics, and all of the stuff that is coming. It's preparing the whole population for what's coming, 
And so when we look at this, the unveiling, in fact, that word in the Greek is used 18 times in the New Testament. And it means to show, expose, to view. So that's the revelation. And when you understand that it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, his revelation. And so um, turn with me back to the, the outline there of the chronological outline. When you look at the introduction and message, we'll see that up through chapter 4, there's this discussion. In fact, the first part of it is get, setting the stage. John, who is the only surviving apostle, he's the only living first eyewitness account of the disciples that were present with Jesus, selected by Jesus. He's the only one that's still alive. It's 30 plus years now since Christ has died. Persecution by Nero and the death of Christians being fed to the lions, Rome, all of that, it's, it's awful. The martyrdom that took place, even though there's more martyrdom today than there was then. So, there, but it is a terrible time for the church, but it also is an amazing time for the church, how that works. Well, John, because of his witness, is put in prison on this remote island in Patmos, and he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. I love that. What was he doing? What was John? What was he doing? All of a sudden, and then he gets this loud voice behind him, and the revelation is Jesus by the work of an angel, the father says, Jesus, I need this done. Tell my guys what's going on here. Go down there. Sends an angel to John. And John says, now address this to the church. And we're going to find out these are actual churches that existed. The marvelous hand of God on this is you're going to see that it's not only through the centuries that what these churches represent, through the ages. They are specific churches in history at those locations in Western Turkey at that time, but they're also representative of what the Lord would say to the church today. If you do this, you better do this, and you better watch out for that. And so, but you'll also find out after chapter 4, there is no discussion of the church again until Revelation chapter 19. When Jesus, will look at that. So to me, that's very telling. He addresses the church in the advance section of that, and then there's nothing but the wrath and the pouring out of the, bowl, the bowls and all this, the, the horrible things that are going to come on the earth. Now, that might be encouraging to us. Um, it is to me. And then we pick up again, and you'll see all of the things that happened between Revelation 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through to 19. Um, there's a whole lot of mess going on, and there's a lot of war. Over half the population of the earth is destroyed. Today, if it happened, we're talking close to almost 4 billion people are dead by plagues, war, starvation, and murder. Hello? That ought to get our attention, right? And so, in the midst of all that, that's why you'd like to say, I don't want to be here, <laughs> And then there's this, the, the revelation of who the false prophet and the Antichrist is and how that all happens and what happens in, at the end. And then in Christ's return, Revelation 19, the thousand-year reign, which is mysteriously vague. There's not a whole lot. It's almost like when we get there, we'll write the next chapter, or, but it's mysteriously vague. But then we also see the final battle, 
and then the resurrection and the great white throne, the resurrection of the dead and the white great white throne judgment, and then the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22. So interesting set. It's like, whew, wow. Okay. Um, let's start by reading scripture. So would you open with me in your word? Bring your swords with you. You're going to need it. And I would encourage you to read along or read ahead uh, this during the next eight weeks. But read it in a meditative kind of an approach that as you read the scriptures, like, wow, what, what would you mean by that? What, pray in advance, Lord, what do you mean by that? So let's begin. I like, I have a parallel Bible. Um, I, it doesn't have the commentary. I use, I use a bunch of studies guides and, and commentaries. I like this scripture. It's an NIV, but it's, um, it's a full life study Bible. Uh, for spirit-filled Christians, and just gives a lot of revelation, revelation insight. I use that one. I use um, a New King James out of um, the Assemblies. God, there's a group there. Um, but this particular Bible that I have is a, um, it's a parallel Bible. It has the King James on the left, and it has the New Living Translation on the right. Now, the King James, you know, I've had, I used to use King James only about 35 years ago, right? It's the only scripture. Well, it turns out, you know, they didn't speak King James back in Jesus' day either, right? 1600. Most people were not literate. They didn't have Bibles, right? But King James had the Bible translated in the 1600s, and that's when it started to become available to the, to the normal population, a regular population. But the these and the thous can um, cause you to stumble a little bit. But the King James was a word-for-word translation from the originals. So it's word for word. The New Living Translation is a thought for thought translation. So I, I benefit by both. I like to read King James because it's word for word. But if people say, well, King James, the King James English is not relevant so much for today. But I do like what the King James sometimes bring in the, in the actual translation in that word for word. But then I get the, the fullness of a thought process by the New Living Translation. Example of this, I use this, is King James would say, all the men were together and they were gay. Well, today, if you're reading that, you know, whoa. Whereas the, the New Living would say, all the men were together and they were full of joy. So, you choose which scripture you want to use, but I like to, to use both. And when you're reading in a large crowd, the New Living Translation is helpful, I think. So, we're going to go there and I'll bounce back and forth. Are you there? Okay, let's begin in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, his servants, the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. God blesses the one who reads the words of, of this prophecy to the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. That's western Turkey. Grace and peace to you from the one who is who always was and who is still to come, 
from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the cloud of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. I, John, your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom, and in the patient endurance to which Jesus has called us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice thundered like a mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp-edged two-edged sword came out of his mouth. His face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me, and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's unpack a few things here that one, we ought to recognize. These are specific churches that were planted by the New Testament believers. And we'll look at a, a page. I actually lay them out in Western Turkey where they exist, where they ig- existed at that time. But I want you to see some of the key points here that, one, listen to the language. Can you imagine, John, put yourself in prison in the Isle of Patmos, and you're worshiping, and all of a sudden, you hear this loud voice behind you, like a trumpet shout. It's like, 
how, how would you have felt like that? I mean, seriously. Suddenly, verse 10, it says, suddenly I heard a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Write a book. Can you imagine? You're like, write a book. And you turn around and the figure you see, this is not a dream. This is an open vision. So th- there's this place, and of course, you'd be afraid. And, and I would think John and all that he had witnessed and everything, when he falls to his feet, you got to love what Jesus does. He comes and just lays his hand on him, right? And so now he has the assignment of what he is to do. Write a book. I love the language that's used throughout the scriptures, especially in the first uh, three or four chapters. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega, right? I'm the beginning and the end, he says in verse 8. I'm the one who was dead and is now alive. I'm the first, right? And so the language of that, you know, it's this amazing revelation of the Son of God. I'm gonna, I am the one that is alive forever and ever. Verse 18, I hold the keys of death and grave. Literally, there is death and Hades. Now, we've, we've shared this on Sunday mornings way back when, and we've had some debates among us here. Um, where did Jesus go in that three-day period from death on the cross? Well, we know from the book of Ephesians and from Peter that in Ephesians 2, it says, in Ephesians 2 and then 4, it says, he went into the depths of the earth, right? We also know from Scripture, we pull these pieces together because it's important to balance all of this. Remember the study of the rich man and Lazarus? What there was a rich man who had every lavish thing. And there was a poor guy, Lazarus, who every day, if you just think about somebody who's a multi-million dollar guy who's got this mansion. And every day he comes out of his mansion and there's this man who sits in rags with sores all over him, deprived of food, and the rich man walks by him every day. And in that scripture, there's this thing about the rich man and Lazarus both die. And there's this place called Abraham's bosom, right? Scripture in Luke says, and it says, the rich man went to the place of the torment where there is flames that never are put out. And Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. Now, this is all prior to the resurrection, right? This is what Jesus is telling the story of what happened with Abraham and those who had died before. And the res- this is pre-resurrection time. So we get a glimpse into what he's talking about. And it's in, in context here, it's really important. So you start with this place where he is, the, the rich man is with Abraham in this holding area that is separate from the torment because he says there's this gulf that exists between us and there's no crossing over. And the rich man cries out in the flames, hey, Father Abraham, let, let Lazarus come and touch my you my tongue with his with water just so I can have some peace. He says, There is no peace. While you were alive, you had your chance. You blew it, and Lazarus now is with me, with Abraham. Well, then at least send him back, someone back from the dead to tell my five brothers that they don't come to this place. Because if they don't listen to the prophets, they don't listen to the word, they won't listen. Scary warning there, right? And so dealing with free will and what you do with what you have been given. Hello. And so we see that this scripture here now, at the 
when Jesus goes into the depths of the earth in Ephesians, you guys tracking with me, right, on this? Right? Okay. Where he says in Ephesians, it says, during that time, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm getting too many strange looks. Come with me. Go to Ephesians for a minute. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. And let's look at, let's begin, especially, uh, verse 7. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 7. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scripture says, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he has ascended, see, now this is post-resurrection. Jesus has ascended. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he sees Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, and he says, you're seated there with him. So this is post-resurrection. But he's now reflecting back, he says, now that he that won, Jesus had ascended, but what he is is but also he descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all in all. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Verse 12, what is their purpose? For perfecting the saints for the work of ministry. So we see here um, that there was this place where in this interim place, Peter also deals with this. We won't go there now, but he also deals with the captives. Most commentaries, and this is my personal belief, you can look at it yourself and decide for yourself, where it says that Jesus, I'm the one who now has the keys of hell and death. When our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve, messed this up, the keys were given to Satan. We know that because there was no argument when Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days, right? What does the devil do? The devil tempts him with, first thing he says, after your fast of 40 days, why don't you change, if you're, re- if you're really the son of God, change the stones to bread. So he comes out, he's not, he's, he's, he's always a snake. He comes at you, you're, you're, after 40 day fast, bread, <laughs> some of that really good stuff. So we know that, but then he says, come and worship me. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll worship me. There's no argument from Jesus, you don't have a right to do it. He didn't argue that at all. Most commentators believe at that point, Satan has authorization given away to him by our great-grandparents. Jesus comes back. The first Adam messed this up. The second Adam's coming to get the keys back. In that place where he then offers himself, it is now finished. He departs into the depths of the earth. He goes and he unlocks the place of Abraham's bosom. And he says, all you who were the righteous ones prior to resurrection, come with me. That's why Matthew, this is a strange scripture. Matthew, during the time where the resurrection happens, when he comes out of the grave, (laughs) it says, graves were opened and the righteous ones that had died before were seen in Jerusalem. Now that's freaky. I mean... Grandma, what are you doing here? I thought you, you know, I told you, it's real, you know, and all of these things are somewhat mysterious, but they all coincide. So here we are now in Revelation, and he says, I'm the one who now has the key. He went to Satan down in the depths. He said, give me the keys. He got the keys back. He's now in charge. That 
fits then with the story of the book of Revelation. I am the one who was dead, who is now alive, and I now have the keys over hell and the grave. And so we see this as the revelation part of what Jesus is trying to tell John in this language. And I love how Scripture builds on Scripture, builds on all the prophecy. It's just like, whew, I get excited. Anyway, okay. Let me see what else I want to pull out of this one. If you'll look at, I am he that liveth was dead. So that's verse 18. The seven churches, the seven stars, the seven lampstands. Let's look at this one. Write down what you have seen, both the things which are now. King James says, and when he saw it, I fell down at his face. He laid his right hand on me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Write the things which thou hast seen. So that's past tense. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be thereafter. It's important for us to understand in Revelation, especially when we start getting into the middle chapters, there's a conglomeration of things that took place in the past, things that are now happening or will happen. And it's like trying to keep track of those chronologically. If you try to read the book somewhat all chronologically, it works in the middle, but it doesn't work in all the cases. And there's this blending. Um, for example, we're going to look at a scripture out of Zechariah. Um, we, we preached out of Zechariah 12 and 14 uh, and tied it a little bit into Ezekiel's prophecy of there's a war coming. There's a major war coming. And uh, this prophecy that Ezekiel gave with Gog and Magog that are going to come against Israel. And part of it, when we look at it, a little hard to understand whether this is during the tribulation hour or is it a war before. Um, but there is... The surrounding nations around Israel are destroyed by fire. Peter talks about the fire that's coming. That looks like nuclear war. Many of you know I was on nuclear submarines, and we carried enough stuff, and our boats carry enough stuff to do what Revelation says right now. And so those Trident missiles, what they can do, and now the Russians just came out two weeks ago. They have a supersonic, hypersonic missile that they say our defense systems can't counter. And, and Putin was wondering, he says, and we've got the U.S. in the crosshairs, quote, unquote. The Chinese admiral tonight, I saw on, on my, my phone, he says, the Chinese admiral says, we ought to sink two of the U.S. aircraft carriers, and then we'll back off. Hello. So what we'll see in this is the preparation, I think, for what's coming in the Ezekiel War. And which was all, and some of these, you know, we've been in enough wars already, but it's coming. And one, it, it, it'll frighten us, especially for our children and grandchildren, but all we can do for that is be prepared. There's a reason he, you're here at this time in this hour. You think this is circumstance because your mom and dad got together? No. You were found out and planned, Ephesians says, before the foundation of the earth. He knew you. He knew your DNA. He knew your family. He knew exactly where you would be. And the longer I live and the more I realize when people come and tell me, it's like, I wonder how much of this I think I did as opposed to he had us walk in these ways. Anyway, it's, that's again part of the mystery that people have argued about predestination or not predestination, free will, and I can't go there. Okay, let's pick up about the seven churches. Um, if you'll turn to 
Well, let's go to page three in your handout, and we'll get to unlocking some of the Revelation stuff associated with this. So on page three in your handout, I realize I got figures and pages, and I've pulled stuff from all different places, but on page three it says the study of Revelation, division of the chapters, and you'll notice at the top there, it's one, we said this, and that page three tops is, it's the revelation of Christ. So this is the revelation of Jesus, it's the revealing to his servants, us, the division, it's important to also know, are we talking about what's going on in heaven, or what's going on on the earth? If you think, if you get those crossed up, it's, again, even more confusing. So chapters 4, 5, 19, and 20 deal with a lot of heaven. He's coming to earth. And then the other chapters, 6, 8, 9, 16, 20, they deal with the story of earth. And then there's a lot of information, tons of information that, like, people are trying to sort out, like, who are the two servants and who are the 144,000? And you got whole groups of uh, theological studies about who that might be and who they are. And Okay. And then there's the past, present, and future events that are taking place. Thyra, Tyra, we'll get to that, Katie. Hold it. We're going we're gonna to look at those specifically, okay? The revelation of the seven churches. It's in, if you look at chapter 2 in that arena, there it's there, okay? Um, the revelation of Christ. God, God gave this to Christ by the Father's will. Jesus chose to share this prophecy with his servants. And we are to observe all of what he promised and told us. So we see the heavenly throne. Now, turn with me to the next account. And on this page where you see the revelation located, it's a really fancy, full of lots of stuff. (laughs) And it's it's a progression both of the chapters and you see on the very left, says top says scene of heaven, and it says scenes on earth. So you have kind of the top going across there is a scene in heaven, like, for example, the scrolls are opened. We'll see that in Revelation 4 and 5. The scrolls get opened. So the command center, what I spoke of on Sunday, remember there's a command center. There is a spiritual clock that is now operating, and Jesus and the Father, the Father knows exactly the day and the hour. The, Jesus and the rest... All of us and the angels, we're not sure of the day or the hour. But we said we'll know the season. So there's these heavenly events that are going on, but then there's these scenes on earth that as the command center and the spiritual clock is being poured out, things are happening in response to that on the earth. And that's what you see here. In, uh, you see the large black line. It says, the introduction there, which I read, and then you see the seven churches that are in the lampstands. And then... Tim LaHaye, they are proponents of the pre-trib rapture. He'll make a case that says, we're out of here before this thing gets really messy. How many say amen to that? Yeah. All right. Um, but then I'll show you some corollaries that say, mm-hmm, maybe. But you'll see that Tim and his guys say, look, here's where the church is taken out. We'll look at the scriptures associated with that. Then there's the seven-year tribulation. A lot of the book of Revelation is focused on this literal seven years. Very much of the book, and, and most commentators, it, it literally is a seven-year period. Now, the countdown, when you look at the number of days, we'll, we may touch on the book of Daniel, the number of days in Daniel's book, and there's all these gyrations. Pastor Terry and I, Terry made a copy of 
there's all sorts of people have tried to study. How many days is this? And does this mean this? And if this feast day happened there, then, then like my head was hurting, right? And so I don't need to engineer that all out. At this point, I just need to know that there is a seven-year period. The book's pretty clear about that. And a whole lot of stuff takes place in that seven-year period. And it is very, very ugly. And then there is the glorious return. See the next arrow? One is going up to heaven, and then the other arrow is coming down from heaven, the glorious appearing, and then there's the thousand-year reign of Christ. So this is a macro view, which is kind of good to look at as you're reading through it, where am I? And I've included a bunch of others in here as well. Um, We'll get to those, I guess, as we go on. Let's, um, Let's now look at the message to the church, to the churches. First of all, turn to page four, and what I want to reveal to you is there are those that um, commentaries believe that it represents actual literal churches. I don't know why Jesus and the Father picked these seven, because there were other churches that were planted, but he chose these seven, and if you'll, I'll give you a quick picture, turn to... Turn back a few pages to page the figure two, right after page five. You'll see, there they are. There's, there's Patmos, so there's the island. And then you come and you see the seven churches that are listed. It's a little busy of a chart, but let me see if I get a better one. I don't think I do. But you can see that those seven churches are actually along that uh, Asia location, but it is known as today as modern Turkey, modern-day Turkey. So those are the seven churches in John's day. So they literally existed. Now, if you go back to page four, we've already covered who's the source and what's the authority of the book of Revelation. It's a blessing that is the reader and both the hearer get blessed. And in John's cover letter to the seven churches, the biblical truths about this salutation. One, he deals with, he says, grace and peace everlasting Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the faithful witness, God's love, the blood atonement. I love that John and the, and the kingdom, men, kingdom men, by the way, you guys, men, you're all invited to come Monday night, 7 o'clock. I'm sorry, you're just missing it. I know everybody's busy, but you, you do well to come 7 o'clock in the great room. It's just a really good time of a small group of men that study together and worship together. The blood, they used a song about the blood, the power of the blood. And so this atonement, the one who shed his blood, washed us by his blood. Um, Look at verse, go back to your word, and it says in verse 6, he has made us kings and priests. This is the King uh, King James. Verse 6 of Revelation 1, he says, he has made us kings and priests unto God and unto his Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he comes with clouds of great glory. In verse 5, he says, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Remember the scripture in Exodus says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So I encourage you to pray every day to plead the blood of Jesus over your loved ones and circumstances. There's a great book by Billy Brim. I don't know if you've ever read her stuff, but it's a... It's about the power of the blood. 
And I've learned that from some really great saints in the past, right? That plead the blood of Jesus over it. The devil hates it, but it's the royal blood that he washed us. So we see here through, again, the biblical truths that are covered both in the salutation of to John. There's grace and peace unto you from the everlasting Father. The seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the faithful witness. God's love, the blood atonement, your kings and priests. Remember where else that's written? In Revelation. We're going to see this. There's another place. He's made you a kingdom of priests. And in Paul, uh, Peter deals with that, right? Second Peter. Remember chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2? says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, right? Living stones fit together in the temple of God. So your stone, my stone, all fitting together, mortared by the Holy Spirit, he's the temple building the, this place, right? So all of that salutation covers so many wonderful biblical truths about the Alpha, the Omega, his return. All right, so now let's tear this part a little more. Turn to page five. I think we've covered this adequately. The, it, this, the title, The Revelation of Christ, by St. John the Divine. Let me ask the question, what are the sevenfold spirits of God? What's he talking about there? Isaiah 11. Good. Let's, good, Kathy. Let's turn there. Hold your finger in Revelation. Go back to Isaiah 11. Again, remember, John is building. The Jews of that time would have understood the book of Isaiah. So for John to hear this from the revelator that I represent the seven spirits of God, John's mind probably would have gone right back to Isaiah. And so we look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. So we'll go back there. <clears throat> Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a branch, a new branch bearing fruit, the old root fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So this is a prophetic word about Christ coming out of David's lineage, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and then he lists the seven spirits of God, and he lists what they are, and it's interesting, there's wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the fear of the Lord. Did you realize that's... That's one of the spirits of God, the fear of the Lord. And so he lists that, and John would have understood that in this revelation by Christ himself, that I represent the seven spirits of God. And then he says, the seven stars are the angels. I've kind of thought about, does every church have an angel? These guys did. In, we're in chapter 1 still, the, the last part of chapter 1. It said, I'm sorry, Isaiah 11, if you're looking for the seven spirits, yeah. But in Revelation 1, it says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in your picture there that we saw, you saw the, the picture of the lamps and the seven churches, and he takes those, they're actual churches, but they also represent historically ages of the church from that time to present. 
We're going to unpack that probably next week. But it also represents typical churches of today. And you're going to see things where, remember where he says to the church at, at uh, he says, you've lost, you've left, actually, not lost, you've left your first love. You can grow cold. It says, you've won your battle. So let's, let's pick up. So we know that the seven stars are angels. So there's an angel. I often think, of, I wonder what our angel looks like. Where's Dell? Dell, was it this past weekend that you said you felt something? We were in a worship. We went in a place of worship on Sunday that, whew, glory to God. I mean, I'm so, we praise God. Anyway, there was things happening prophetically in the, in the worship, but I had people coming up to me, in, and Dell was, where, you're sitting back here? Right here. And felt a hand, and there was nobody there. And it wasn't a bad thing. <laughs> it was during worship. And so I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I remember um, for me, I'll just give you a quick personal testimony. Um, when we were asked to run the deliverance tents for 20,000 people in Belém, Brazil, and Randy Clark had asked me, Bill Johnson asked me, said, would you take your church guys and would you, we have so many demonic manifestations, we need you guys to set up a special place in the soccer stadium and as the people manifest demonically, we want to bring them to you. And I had an intercessor that told me um, just before I left that Satan was going to try to kill me on the trip. He called me the day before I left. And I'm like, oh, wow, yipes. Now, praise God, I had another intercessor that says, I will pray for you three hours every day until you get back with your feet on the U.S. soil. Praise God. So I said, okay. So I had a warning and I had covering and, I like, and, the, and the elders had sent me out. And we get there and Randy comes to me and goes, I need you to run this deliverance tent when you get there. And I'm like, ah, this is where devil's going to try to kill me. I don't think that's God. I don't know if I'm going to do that. So I called back to my senior pastor, Steve Mattis at the time, who happened to pick up the phone, who he rarely answered the phone, and I'm calling from Brazil, and he picks up the phone, hey, this is Steve. I said, Steve, hi, this is Tom. I just got asked by the apostolic leader under Global Awakening and the apostolic leader over 70 of the four square churches for us to run the deliverance tents for these 20,000 people. What do you say? For such a time as this, you've been raised up for this. Go and do it. And I'm like, that's not what I wanted to hear, I don't think. And I hung up the phone, and I said, okay, God, if this now it becomes obedient disobedience, right? So I get on my knees in the hotel room, and I pray. I said, Lord, confirm for me. I get a picture. I get a strategy for war. And one of the strategies, it was, there was too, it's too much time to unpack it, but he told me exactly how we were to do it, what we were to do. And I didn't know at the time that the Brazilians assign a Macumba witch to each one of their soccer stadiums. So when we, Jericho marched, the soccer stadium, one of the strategies, take a Jericho march and go around and break all the power of witchcraft. I said, okay, check. We did it. Well, what were we doing? We were taking back the land. I didn't know that. But here's the point. I get in, I'm on the 17th floor of this hotel, and I'm about ready to go down and tell our team, guess what? We have a bigger assignment than you thought when you signed up for this trip. And I'm, I get in the, ho I get, I'm the only guy in the elevator, and I'm like, I'm, I'm in a lot of tension. I don't want anybody to get hurt. This is a big assignment. And I just pray, Lord, you got to confirm for me this is really you. I felt two massive hands on my shoulders. And I'm like, 
I know there's nobody in here but, but me now, and I believe there was a massive angel assigned to us. And the stuff that happened in that trip, crazy, crazy stuff. Anyway, so the point of this is I believe there's angelic response sent for the application of particular body parts. We just read this. My wife and I had a 1 Corinthians 12. Read that. It's the body parts. It's right. The eye can't say to the hand, you're not this and that. And we do. So in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about the body of Christ. Don't you know that you're part of the body of Christ? And he's caused you to be, a, I believe he assigns an angel for a specific purpose. I don't know. Some of you, I don't know if some of you remember. Maybe Mary Esther does. Mary Esther, well, this is, golly, I don't know how many years back. There was a, a missionary sitting right by where Doug is. This guy was a seer. He was a missionary to Kiev in the Ukraine area. And this guy would always tell me, I see these things. I'm like, I don't, I don't see, I see, I feel things, but I don't see a whole lot yet. And so one Sunday morning, Mary Esther's up here, and um, there was a lady on the key, one of our worship leaders on the keyboard back here. And the missionary comes, he goes, there's, a, there's an angel here. I go, oh, okay. He goes out and gets his camera, his whatever is those at that time, digital kind of camera. And he starts shooting things. I don't even remember seeing this. And here's Mary Esther. And Mary Esther's in a, a fog. It's almost like there's a mist that totally encapsulated her. I couldn't even see. When he, when he brought that film in, I could barely see the worship leader. The presence of God. I knew it. I could feel the presence of God. All, I, I get it all over me at times. But so what's the point? Do not dismiss angelic presence. I don't believe we're supposed to worship them. They certainly didn't. But don't dismiss them. They're really important. Jesus had an assignment. Go and take. And so when we look at this assignment that we see, he says the seven churches and the seven lampstands. That's going to be important because he warns them. Jesus warns these seven churches, if you don't do certain things, I will remove your lampstand. And in fact, some of these churches no longer exist today. Okay, let's pick up, let's read chapter 2. The message of the church to Ephesus. Now we start to get specific. Write this letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He holds the seven angels in his right hand. That's huge to me. And the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Jesus walks among the churches. Does that encourage you for Sunday morning worship? I, it does for me. I know all the things that you do, and I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered... They are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. How far have you fallen? Turn back to me. Do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. 
from its place among these churches. But this is, your fa- this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give you fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Wow. Okay, let's reference some things. Hold your finger there. Who are these Nicolaitans? And then what is these liars in these? Turn with me back to Acts chapter 20. And here you're going to see another correlation. Realizing now we are probably 35 years after this was written in Acts 20 where Paul is on his way to Rome just before where he will end up being martyred. And remember, he spent three years in Ephesus, planted Ephesus. It's one of the places where Timothy was the senior pastor at Ephesus, his spiritual son, Paul's spiritual son. It's the place where riots broke out. It's where Diana had all of that, the silversmiths, remember, all the stuff that was going on. And and, uh, they burn over $2 million worth of occult books because of the move of God, the people of the way, right? And so here, Paul is about ready to go to present himself in Rome, and he warns the Ephesian elders of what's going to happen. Are you there in Acts 20? Let's pick up and let's, uh, let's just look at 13, 2013. It says, Paul went by the land of Asos where he arranged for, him, for, people, for us to join him. Traveled by ship, he joined us there. We sailed together to Mytilene. The next day we sailed past the island of Chios. The following day we crossed to the island of Samos. And day later we arrived in Miletus. Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when we landed in Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church of Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. When they arrived and declared, you know from the day that I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came from from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to do to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I've had one message for the Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God, and having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except the Holy Spirit tells me the city after city that jail and suffering lies ahead. But my life is worth nothing unless I use it to finish the work assigned to me. And he goes on and he says, verse 28, guard yourselves and God's people. Feed the shepherds. Feed the shepherd. Be a good shepherd. Wait, let me read. So guard yourselves as God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as elders. I know false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up to distort the truth in order to draw following. Watch out. Remember the three years that I was with you, my constant watch and care over you, night and day, and my many tears for you. 
And now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace to build up and give you inheritance for all those set apart for he himself. So we see that 35 years later, so 35 years prior, Paul says, vicious wolves are going to come in and rip this place apart. And some of them are going to come from within the very flock. And so, man, if you have been in any churches long enough, it's there, okay? All sorts of agendas, all sorts of people trying to draw a flock and covering and getting this. It's just wild. But Paul warns, and then Jesus comes through the revelation that says, let's go back now to Revelation. I have this complaint against you, but one of the benefits was that you have examined the claims, Revelation 2.2, you examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not, and you've discovered they're liars, and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Man, if you've ever been an elder in a church or you've been a leader in a church, there's times you just said, I didn't sign up for this. He says, I see, I see what's going on. He says, and I, I encourage you, I, I'm, I'm for you. You didn't quit. You kept, you kept on. But then he goes, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. Now, get the picture. The church was in revival 35 years ago, right? They're burning occult books. There's a riot breaking out because Diana and all of the silversmiths, all the idols of this worship of idolatry is being destroyed. This church is on fire. Timothy, the son of Paul, spiritual son of Paul, he's in there. He's, there's a revival breaking out in this place. 35 years later, this is a whole generation. How many have died? Timothy's probably still not alive. And John's in prison, and Jesus says, you have left your first love. To me, there's a difference between lost, lost as I misplaced it somehow. No, I left it. I got distracted by something other than the love of my brother or the love of Christ. That's scary to me. And I have walked, you probably too, if you've been a Christian long enough, You've walked with people that were so on fire. Man, I've been in mission fields with people who have had blind eyes open, tumors disappear, legs grow out. And years later, they're nowhere. They're not even in church. I've worked with pastors who have no, are no longer even in ministry walking with anybody. Don't go to church. Mad at God. And none of us, if we think we're all that, this can't, you got to guard this. The whole message that's been coming out the last two weeks of intercession is be intentional, be diligent, guard what you have. If you don't, if you don't guard what you have, he's going to warn you, he says, you'll, you'll lose what you even have. And so, and it is so easy for us humanly to get distracted and pulled away. I mean, it's just... There's all sorts of reasons, and, and I'm, you know, I, I get it. I'm in the same place. We have to be in this place of diligence towards God. He says, I have this against you. You don't, of all the churches, you don't still love me. You're not as on fire as you were for me. Mm. If you don't fix this, I will remove your lampstand. 
There's no more church at Ephesus, by the way. Now, who are these? We'll finish with this. Who are these Nicolosian characters, right? Um, let me just say this. There's a, there's a pretty good write-up on this, but there was a... Let me just read it to you. I think it's best out of here. It's the tolerance of immorality. There was this um, belief at the time. Remember, there were... There was temple prostitution. Imagine going to a church or a temple and prostitution's allowed. What the heck kind of church would that be, right? And so um, there's argument by the church fathers back in the 150, 80, 300 area. Let's read this to you, okay? The Nicolaitans. Remember, first of all, Jesus says, you haven't tolerated them and you hate them and so do I. Wow. For Jesus, I don't... The church fathers thought that Nicholas of Acts 16.5, we won't turn there, who was chosen as one of the seven men to serve the church in Jerusalem, it's in Acts 16.5, to be the founder of this heretic sect. Arrhenius, however, thought it was just a misunderstanding of his teaching that produced this group of people called the Nicolosians. According to Arrhenius, this is one of the church fathers back in 100... He taught that the flesh must be abused. Do you ever, ever see the Muslims self-abusing themselves? There was a practice that says, you need to hurt yourself and damage yourself. That way you become holier or something. By this, he meant that the body must be buffeted to keep it under control. The Nicolaitans changed this teaching to mean that the flesh could be treated in any fashion and that the flesh was insignificant and of no concern. That means you could do whatever you want with your flesh, and it was separate than the spirit. Now, that doesn't come anywhere close to <laughs> what's in the book, right? So, there was a teaching that came out of probably the Diana worship and all of the idolatry of that. Immorality was a thing where Paul, he pre go Corinthians, every one of the New Testament books that says, if you give in to sexual immorality... All right, I'm getting looks again. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we can go to Ephesians. We can go to a bunch of them, but let's, uh, let's just go to Galatians. Paul writes here in Galatians. Remember, this is, if you follow the Spirit, you'll produce fruit. If you follow the flesh, you're going to produce the following evil things, right? When you, verse 19, Ephesians 5, 19, if you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, enviness, drunkenness, wild parties, and all other sins, as if they're not listed there, but okay. Let me tell you again, as I have told you before, anyone living this sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a message that is throughout New Testament. So what had happened in the church at Ephesus, they were dealing with the liars and all the stuff, but they were kind of winking at the immorality. And he just says, look, I, 
I'm glad that you don't tolerate these Nickelodeon. That sect that believes in this stuff, it's not, it's not good. And so, okay, um, we're going to land this thing and we'll stop here probably. What I would, what I would like to do, we've, we've gotten to the church at Ephesus. So what I would like you to do for next week, if you would read the remainder of chapter 2 through chapter 3, And, well, let's read the remainder of chapter 2 and 3, and we'll pick up. You could read chapter 4 as well. So take some time, but do it meditatively. This is a place where you just get quiet, get your cup of coffee, right? And just sit there and ask the Holy Spirit, bring revelation to me on these things. What I'd like you to do is look at each of the categories of the churches. So we can see right here, Ephesus... There were positive things that you had done, right? You have not tolerated these things, and you've exposed the liars who are bringing in ungodly teachings, apostles who say they are, but they're not. But then you've tolerated. This is consider your ways. But you don't love me the same. So we ought to say, Lord, where's my heart? towards you. We know the greatest commandment. Go to Matthew 22. They try to trip him up. What are the, what is the greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments hang on these. And so, that's a big one. And I don't think it's by mistake that he takes the church at Ephesus, and he says, you don't love me the same. And so, consider your ways, Haggai 1.7, and then, Lord, are there any defilements? The rest of Haggai 2 deals with this thing about what defilements are in your life. What are we looking at, thinking at? Who are we hanging with? What is it that is causing me not to love you the same? And then read the other churches about what they do. What are their positive things and what are their negative things? You might want to just list those. And then you look at it from the context of what he's, he's giving you kind of a an expectation of what he desires from his church and the things that he doesn't want. And so once we make that application, I think the seven churches, parts of this, and then when we lay out historically through the ages what it looks like, and when you'll see towards the end is the last church and where it is and where we are today. All right, let's stand and we'll thank you for your, your attention and Lord, I just, uh, I thank you that I'm so glad you wrote this down for us, Lord. What would we be doing if we didn't have a common word to look after, and it's from you, and therefore it is part of that love letter that you have for your people, that you haven't left us ignorant to the devices of the enemy. So Lord, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. If you want to release dreams or visions or ahas, Lord, just put it all together so that your people get really excited. And Lord, we want to be a people that love you. We're the same fervent or more so fervent than when we first got saved. That we are, we are patiently awaiting your return. So I thank you, Lord. Bless each one. Safety for their families. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Thanks for being here.